Well, good morning, everybody. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, let's open up to uh, 1 Samuel. So we're finished with the New Testament journeys of Paul and switching back to five weeks in the Old Testament. And this series is the rise of Israel. Uh, so we're looking at those first few stories in the Old Testament before Israel really becomes this dominant power uh, in the region. And today is about Samuel. And Samuel's an interesting character in the Old Testament. Um, but we see today how he becomes uh, dedicated to the Lord and the whole story of Hannah, his mom, and Eli, the priest at the time, and his response and all these different things. So uh, it's, a hard, it's a hard passage to summarize neatly. Um, and the key thought for me that I came away with was that God always deals justly with every person, uh, no matter if it's uh, a mom who passionately desires uh, a gift from God, no matter if it's an old priest who is really a lousy dad, no matter if it's uh, two sons who are pagan at best, uh, no matter if it's, I mean, God always deals justly with uh, and that's a comforting thing because I look at a scenario as mixed up and twisted as this one is and I go, I really got nothing. I wouldn't know what to do here. I just hit the smite button and wipe them all off and start over with new folks you know, and just go from there. But God fortunately doesn't do that. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and 1, Samuel, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament are really just one book in the original. We cut them up into two books when the Bible got translated into Greek because it was too big to put on one section of whatever they were putting it on. Um, and there's really no introduction. There's no, this is who's writing. This is what time period we are. It's just, we jump right into middle, to the middle of this story. We think that Samuel probably wrote most of First and Second Samuel, but for a big chunk of Second Samuel, he's dead. So obviously the Holy Spirit could have told him all those things for a hundred years later. With including conversations, but more than likely he wrote part of 1 Samuel, maybe all of 1 Samuel, and then somebody else came along and wrote 2 Samuel. Uh, and that's the breakfast bucket that's going around there. In case you're, that was awesome. I didn't even have to see. I could just All of your eyes were just going like this. That was awesome. Well done. Cool. All right, so in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, now there was a certain man of uh, Ramathaim Zophim of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. The son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. So we start off. <laughs> what was that? That was, that was the whip. Oh, the whip. Yes, yes, yes. We watched Big Bang. That was awesome. That was fantastic. You knew that was coming and you planned it, didn't you? That was awesome. Two whip cracks. That's right. All right, so he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, which means grace, and the name of the other was Peninnah, which means jewel. Uh, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. So typically in the Bible, when you see lists of names, the most important person is listed first, or the first person in order, and that sounds kind of odd, like I'm being redundant, but the most important person or the first person uh, chronologically is listed first. Most of the commentators think that Hannah was the first wife and that he picked up Peninnah because Hannah didn't have any children. So we have this, perhaps, uh, very earthly approach to fixing a problem that he thought was his to fix and not God's to fix. So we have a, an issue here. 
The other thing you'll notice uh, is that all throughout the Old Testament, you see all these people with multiple wives. And you can come away with a view that God's okay with polygamy in the Old Testament if you never study any of the families. There is no instance in the Old Testament of a happy home with multiple wives. And everybody said, amen, right. So even though polygamy is present in the Old Testament, it is never present in a happy home. It is never, ever present in a happy home. And immediately we see in this passage that that's the case. So verse 3, this man, Elkanah, went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice for the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And Shiloh is a a city that we are perhaps as New Testament believers not as familiar with, but Shiloh was the religious and cultural center of Israel for 400 years. So very, very important city in this time. We, as New Testament believers, focus far more on what city in the Old Testament? Jerusalem, because who made his home there? Right, and so that's the that's the city. Well, Shiloh was the big city in this time, so I don't want to skip that fact. So also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas. Hophni's name means pugilist, like a fighter. Phineas's name means mouth of brass. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> um, so we see really quick Eli's parenting skills in naming his children. Because it was the daddy's job to ultimately name the child. Um, which are a bit strange at this point. So our first introduction to Eli is, he did what? You kind of got to keep that in the back of your head. The priests of the Lord were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord closed her womb. Now, I don't want to skip over this offering concept in the Old Testament, because... So often, in, as New Testament believers, we can get mixed up into thinking that the offerings were what saved an Old Testament believer, and that's absolutely, completely, and totally not the case. Old Testament believers were saved by grace through faith, just like New Testament believers are saved by grace through faith. The offerings, God set out that this is how you have a right relationship with me. So, we'll start off with an easy question in Sunday school this morning. Who's in charge of the universe? God. So who gets to define the rules of the universe? God. In the Old Testament, he defined the rules of the universe as having a right relationship with him as regularly offering offerings to confess, to have a right relationship with him. Now that's not salvation, because all of you know the difference between being married and being happily married. And everybody said, amen, right? Even if you're not married, you're you grew up in a home where perhaps that was the case and perhaps not, not the case at times, right? So the marriage with God is the salvation element. That's by grace through faith. The happy part in the Old Testament was defined as being accomplished by offerings. In the New Testament, it's confessing our sin and walking according to the teachings of Jesus and living in community with believers and all these things the New Testament talks about. So so often we can see all this bloodshed and all these offerings in the Old Testament. Well, that's how they got saved. No, 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 no. That's just how they had a right relationship with God. So I don't want to confuse those two things as we go through the Old Testament. So he would give portions. So Hannah was fat? I mean, what is this talking about? Hannah gets a double portion? Because I mean, this makes no sense. I mean, where are we at with this, right? Well, when you brought offerings to the priests, there were certain offerings, sin offerings, that you never ate of. You never ate the sin offering. The sin offering got burned up and totally
picture of what happens to Jesus Christ a couple thousand years later. There were also peace offerings where you want to enter into a peaceful relationship with God. Those you participated in. The priest ate some, and you ate some. And the head of the family would take some, and he would distribute it to his family according to however he wanted to. So he's handing out this special meal that we only eat once a year in the most special place in all of Israel, and he gets to his favorite wife, and he gives her double. So what do you think Peninnah thinks of that? Well, we're going to find out. Okay. For he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. So here's the question on the handout. Who had closed her womb? The Lord. So if the Lord had closed it, then who can open it? Okay, right. That makes sense. And her rival, verse 6. Happy home? I don't think so. And her rival also provoked her severely. Now there's a difference. Uh, in the New Testament, there's this verse that says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Right? Uh, and the idea there is every dad ought to know where the line is between we're having fun and I just made you angry. And Penina knew where the line was and she was firmly stepped across the line. She, this word means to pick on someone until they are angry. She was trying to pick a fight and she did. To make her miserable. The word for miserable here is to tremble like you tremble from thunder. So you know when you, thunder goes off and you just kind of, whoa, what in the world? That was where she was at during this special time of worship once a year at the tabernacle. So how many of you have ever walked into church mad? Does that just ruin the whole experience? Because you're sitting there trying to sing a worship song to the Lord, and you're like, I could smack him or her right now. And this is what her worship experience was like, apparently, regularly. So, so this is where her heart is. This is where her, she is heavy, she is barren, which in this culture was just a sign of, uh, it was just awful, right? You, you were considered second class if you were barren. So she provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 7, so it was year by year when Hannah went up to the house of the Lord that Peninnah provoked her. Therefore Hannah wept bitterly and did not eat. So when Elkanah handed out the portions and gave Hannah the double portion, she wouldn't eat it. So what do you think Peninnah thought of that? He's, he's thinking you're special and you're not even participating. I mean, we're just, this is adding fuel to this fire. So verse 8, then one year, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Here we go. We've got a guy who thinks he's got women figured out. Who thinks that this is the right statement to make at this time. Right? And, and I, think he, I think he honestly comes from a position of, I care about you, I love you, but dang it, that just wasn't the right thing to say. Okay? I, I don't know what you do say in this situation, right, with two wives and, I don't know, maybe go watch Big Love and get some tips. But, no, don't go watch Big Love as a joke. Okay? Um, sorry. But... But they're both in the middle of this situation. They're not on the back side of this situation yet, looking back on what God has done, seeing how God's going to deal justly with everybody in this story, and they're not there yet. Okay, So they're in the middle of this whirlwind, trying to figure out, where is God in all of this? Because this doesn't make sense. 
Verse 9, so Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And Hannah was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish, which is a beautiful thing, right? She is consumed with her grief and her bitterness and her anger, and she takes it straight to God. And that's, if you don't get anything else out of this entire lesson, when you've got trouble in your life, go to the Lord broad shoulders and he can handle it. Um, She prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish and Hannah made a vow and said O Lord of hosts uh, the the word she's using here is the armies, the God of all the armies of the earth and all the armies of the heavens. Because she's being attacked and she needs a God who commands armies. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So she's honest with God, and she promises to make her son a lifelong, that's your blank, a lifelong or a perpetual Nazarite. Uh, and this is, you can go to Numbers chapter 6 if you want to read all the details about a Nazarite, but this was somebody who was distinctly and visibly different. It, this was not a What's wrong with No, no, you know exactly this person is a Nazarite. They are they stand out, they look different, everything about them is different. Verse 12, as it happened, Hannah continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. Now, what does it say about the spiritual condition of Israel at this time that the first thing the priest thinks when he sees someone's lips moving and no words coming out is that they've been drinking. Probably not good, right? So, so he thinks she's drunk. So Eli says to her, which is good, he confronts this issue. How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now think about Hannah's position right now, right? So her husband has kind of misunderstood what her emotional feeling is. Her priest is misunderstanding her this is tough. And she responds so beautifully. No, my Lord. Respectful, right? I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. See the imagery of the pouring out the soul. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked or worthless woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. He didn't know what she prayed for, right? She didn't tell him. But he realizes, okay, we're, we're to the point where you are broken before God. I'm going to put a blessing on you, which to her would have been incredibly encouraging. This was the, the most highly uh, religious ranking person in the nation at this time, right? So, I, I, I don't know, at Baptist, we don't have this hierarchical structure, but if, let's say, Billy Graham hears you crying and praying, and he comes up to you and you go, God, God grants you your petition. You go, wow, that's very cool. Okay. You'd feel a little bit better, right? Somebody's behind you and got your back. So verse 18, and she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She left her burden before God. Um, and as best I can tell, she never picks it up again. But that's what I do, right? God, I've got this thing on my heart. I've got this thing, and it's just awful. Here you go. And I go, and sometimes it takes 20 minutes. 
And before I go, uh, you know, I think you need help carrying that. Let's just pick it up. I'll help you carry it, right? And, and it's just not what she did. So verse 19, then they, this is Elkanah's family, rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew, this is in the biblical sense, Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now this, is, this word remembered, um, so there's, there's almost twice as many Hebrew and Greek words in the original language as there are in our English Bibles. So there are a lot of things that get lost in translation. The remembered is, it's kind of as good as we can do in English with one word. But the idea is not that God had forgotten. Because when we think of, oh, I remembered something, it's because we had forgotten. It's that God chose to focus on this right now. He knows all things at all time, which I can't imagine keeping up with all that. Right? To know everything at all time. That's just a lot. Some theological term in there, I'm sure, but I don't remember what it is. Um, what is it? Omniscience? Is that what it is? Yep, I always get the omnis mixed up. That's why you don't hear me use them very often, because I forget them. So, so he knows all of this stuff, and he's choosing right now just to focus on this. So he remembered her, and it came to pass in the process of time which kind of implies that this took a while, that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, because I have asked of him for the Lord. Now, Samuel means name of God. And she, she kind of makes a little joke here, because the word for asked sounds like Samuel in Hebrew. So it's kind of like, I've, I've Samueled him from the Lord. Okay, so phonetically speaking, this is a bit of a joke here. And apparently... This is a riotous joke in the, um, in the Jewish community. They just get the big kick out of this. And I was reading and I was going, I'll tell it, but it didn't really resonate with me. And obviously it didn't resonate with any of you, so it must not be that funny to English-speaking people. But all jokes aside, God answers prayer. Now, one of the cool things about this is that what kind of prayer did Hannah pray? Silent prayer. This is our theological basis in the Bible. Hannah's answered silent prayer for being able to pray silently and have that answered. We think about it that, well, of course you can pray silently. Well, this is the theological justification for that. This is why we know we can do it, because God answered one like that. Um, and sometimes we pray silently, and sometimes we pray out loud. We can pray lying down. We can pray standing up. We can pray with our arms raised, with our arms behind us. We can just pray. God is always listening. And sometimes... Sometimes we pray for a long time about something. Right, Albert? Yes, just a little bit. Albert's going Okay, so for about the past seven months, um, well, once I'll start back, I finished school. Yes, it was August 31st was the official date. And for about seven months, thereabouts, I've been praying for a new job. Um, Every single week. Yes. I mean, exactly. Now, <laughs> Um, and, and on top of that, I've also gotten messages. People say, you know, uh, we're praying for you and all that sort of thing. So, with that being said, I am now the newest uh, employee of Baylor School. So, so which is really cool because uh, it's uh, an incredible campus. It's an incredible position. I'm in a position. Of... <laughs> so, I'm in an... <laughs> so, I'm in an incredible position. It's uh, an incredible learning opportunity. There's some very smart people that I've been working with and a chance to learn a lot, so I'm definitely excited. So thank you to everybody um, for praying because it actually works, and 
<laughs> it really does. And so that's that's a proof of that. So think about this God that we serve, right? So he's been answering these prayers for thousands of years. Thousands of years. I do something for three weeks and get tired of it. Right? And for thousands of years, he has been doing this to his children. And it is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And he lets us participate in community to pray for each other. It's one of the greatest things about church. So... Here we go, verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow, but Hannah did not go up. What? What? Do we have a chink in her perfect armor here? I don't know. For she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Now, what do we know about priests? They are what gender? Do they have anything that could help a young child? No. No. So to drop the child off before he is weaned would not be okay. All right, this is a, uh, a practically wonderful thing that I'm sure all of the priests appreciate. Okay? All right. I just wanted to clarify that for a second. Because we skip past this stuff sometimes. Verse 23, so Elkanah, uh, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. That's the wisest thing he says ever in this whole passage right there. Okay? Because she is really wise. Wait until you've weaned him, only let the Lord establish his word. Which is this kind of weird way of saying, do your part of the bargain and let God's will be done. Right? Just do your thing and, and God will take care of his stuff. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. Now when she'd weaned him, and this is probably around two or three, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, one skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered, the, they put that child was young in there for all the guys that are really not paying attention to the age. They slaughtered a bull. I thought that was funny, but I guess not. They slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. They brought the child to Eli. To Eli. What do we know about Eli's parenting skills at this point? Not good. What kind of faith does Hannah have in God? Albert pointed this out to me this morning. I just totally missed it. What kind of faith does Hannah have in God that would say, I trust you in the midst of all of this corruption? Ah, I cannot imagine. I cannot. Well, for one, I can't imagine. You know, so there's stories in the Old Testament that we can relate to very directly. You know, I prayed and God answered my prayer. But to answer my prayer so that I can give up my child, I cannot relate to that. I certainly, so the New Testament example of this is, uh, say Julie and I have no children. Uh, she prays. She makes a vow to God. If, um, if God, you will give us a child, I will bring him to Daryl and leave him with Daryl. <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, you're just like, what? No, are you crazy? I don't think so. I mean, that's, I mean, I know Daryl's kids, and I love Daryl's kids, but no. <laughs> okay? That's going to be edited out of the podcast right there. <laughs> all right, so she takes him up with him. She's got all this other stuff with her. And verse 26, and she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman. And I can just hear can you hear her voice here? I'm the woman that stood before you and prayed. For this child. You see her pointing right now, right? For this child. I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he, sh- he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. 
and Hannah was obedient. And I cannot imagine the level. I, I don't know. You, you don't need to hear me talk about how amazingly. I don't have a word for it. I don't know how to describe giving up your child. Uh, but that's what she did. And she wasn't heartbroken about this because she follows it up with this prayer. And I'm just going to try to read it without totally breaking down. Verse second, uh, 1 Samuel 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn or my strength is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Who do you think the enemies are here? It's not hard to figure out, right? Penina, right? Yeah. Uh, no one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty men are broken, and those who are stumbled are girded with strength. Those who, have, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne, what's the number? Seven, remember that. And she who has many children has become feeble. How many, how many, how many kids does Hannah have at this point? One. And the number seven means what? Completion. We're done, right? She got what she asked for. In her mind, God has answered my prayer. Okay? Verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes the poor rich, makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Does this sound like a woman who is downtrodden and defeated and depressed? No. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. Remember how she trembled like she trembled from the sound of thunder? The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and, the, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. How old is the child here? Your children can serve God too at very young ages. And we better be teaching them how. So, verse 12. Now we switch gears. So we've looked at Hannah's child, right? Now let's look at Eli's children. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. Does anybody have a different translation? Worthless. Anybody else? Wicked. Anybody else? Scoundrels. Anybody else? Corrupt. You see how wide this word is? In some of your translations, it may say sons of Belial, which is a way of saying the, the devil's kids, right? They're the devil's kids. And what word did the Bible use to describe them earlier in chapter 1? The Bible called them priests earlier in chapter 1. So we've got priests who are the devil's kids. Okay. They did not know the Lord. So remember a couple weeks ago I talked about getting the game, getting the game, getting the game, put on your jersey, getting the game. Well, just because you're in the game doesn't mean you're on the right team. They're in the game, but they're playing for the wrong team. Okay? And there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Undoubtedly, Eli, they had learned something about God from Eli. I mean, I don't know how you stay around a priest and watch the priestly duties and not learn something about God. But they missed God in learning about God. Verse 13, And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. i got a question for you. 
when we bring our tithe to God, what part of our income is the tithe? The first. Okay? God is very clear about this point, that it is the first, because you always have the first. You don't always have the last. Sometimes you spent the last. You always have the first. So the priests had this thing where they would put a hook in the pot, and whatever came out first, who got it? The priest. The priest got his cut before God got his cut. This is a problem, because in, where is it? Leviticus 7, if you want to go and study up on um, when, who gets what, and what part, and the cut, and all this, it's really gory, but it gives all the details, and this is not the order that they were told to do it in, in Leviticus 7. And the people knew it, and the people got angry at it, and the people would challenge these priests and these servants, and they'd say, this is not right. And the priests would say, if you don't give it to me now, I will take it by force. That's in verse 16. So, so the preachers, the, the Old Testament equivalent of the preachers, are saying, you've got to disobey God in the way that you worship. And if you don't, I'm going to come smack you around. What kind of position does this put the people in? Right? This is where, spiritually, they are at this point. So verse 17, Therefore the sins of the young men was, great, was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. I don't know all of the scope of what my responsibility is as a teacher. But if you walk out of here and you hate the scriptures as a result of what I have done, I goofed up. Right? Would you all agree? That's probably true. They hated, the people hated to bring an offering because of what these folks were doing. And my question is, where is Eli? Crickets. Right? Nothing. Nothing. Verse 18, so we shift again, the pendulum swings. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Now, this is the priestly garment, right? This is the, the garment that's kind of underneath the outer garment of the high priest. So, even as a child. So, have you ever seen a little bitty boy walk into church in a suit? He's like, ooh, he looks good. That, that was the, the, the modern equivalent to that. It's like, oh, I know what he's wearing. Yeah, he's a servant. You could tell by his appearance. He was visibly set apart for this service. It's beautiful. Verse 19, this is, uh, this is amazing. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Can you imagine? So all year long, she's waiting to see him. She's probably looking in her community for other little boys that are about his age. I bet he's, I bet he's about this tall. He's got a robe for the year. I mean, I'm just, how do you? Uh, I have no emotions here. I just, it, I've cried so much this week. I'm just like empty of tears right now. When she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, verse 20, and Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord, and they would go to their home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. How many are we at total now? Are we at seven? She was complete with Samuel. She was totally fine with Samuel. That seven does not reference the total number of her children. She was fine with Samuel. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So if you're keeping score at home, that's Hannah six, Eli negative two. 
Now, does this seem like the sc- where the score ought to be? You'd think the score would be in favor of the priest. But who does God prefer? God prefers those with a humble and a contrite spirit that come before him lowly, and that's what she did. So, verse 22. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And you're like, what? So they're stealing out of the offering. They're sleeping with, I don't know, who lays at the door of the tabernacle? Whoever's there, right? I don't know. It's awful. So he said to them, why do you do such things? Here he finally speaks up. For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for this is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? End of quote. That's it. That was his response. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature. So every time we see Eli's kids doing awful, it's immediately followed up with, but Samuel was doing the right thing. And he grew in favor with both the Lord and with men. And that reminds me of this uh, Luke 2.52 verse. You remember this? And Jesus grew in stature and in favor both with God and with man. Um, It describes Jesus' growth and development as well. So actually, the Luke verse would have reminded the Old Testament Jews of the Samuel verse as opposed to flip-flop like we typically have it because we typically have more experience with the New Testament. He grew in favor in his stature and uh, in favor with Lord and man. And then verse 27, this man of God just shows up. And we have no idea who he is, but he stands up and he goes toe-to-toe with Eli and he says, God's going to do this and God's going to do this and God's going to do this and God's going to... He just... He preaches just a ridiculously judgmental sermon right at Eli and he basically says... Um, look at verse uh, 36. And it shall come to pass that everyone who's left in your house will come and bow down to him. This is the priest that God's going to raise up for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread. He said, your house is going to be wiped out. And I'm going to raise up who I want to raise up. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So chapter 3, this is going to take about three minutes and we're done. Verse 1. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare. What's your translation say there? Very rare. Okay. Anybody else? Precious. Um, The idea was that God did not audibly speak a lot in Israel at this time. It's up to him. He's the creator of the universe. He can speak as much or as little as he wants to. It was rare in those days. and There was no widespread revelation. It came to pass at that time when Eli was lying down in his place, when his eyes had begun to grow dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was. So we see, many times in Scripture, you'll see the physical description of someone and the physical description of his surroundings reflect the condition of the nation at that time. And that's really what's going on here, is that everything was dimming. Israel's on the decline. We need a leader. We need a hero to rise up. And in case you haven't been paying attention, that's what God's doing with Samuel this whole time, right? It's like, wicked, 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 and Samuel. Wicked, 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 and Samuel. He's getting him ready. He's still a kid. He can't, he can't lead yet, but he's getting him ready. And while Samuel was lying down, the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. So he ran to Eli. Eli's the only other one in the house, right? And he said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And 
and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli. And Samuel's probably thinking, dude, come on, you know, it's, it's at night, I'm tired, let me sleep. Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call my son, lie down. And then this little parenthetical, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the, Lord, the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the idea here is that Samuel didn't know God's voice yet. Right? He'd heard about God, and he was learning about God, and he was growing, but God hadn't spoken to him yet. Um, and until God does, you can't explain this to anybody. Okay? Until God speaks to you, you just, I don't know how you explain it to anybody. But when he does, you'll know it's him. And that's, that's what's happening here. So verse 8, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Right? I think we missed an exclamation point in there somewhere. But Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. If it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and stood. Don't miss it. This was not a vision. This was not a dream. This was the Lord came and stood and called it as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Now, I love to see obedient children, right? You, you like to see kids that just obey, and it's good. Um, the thing that I kind of got out of this part of this text was God's revelation does not discriminate based on age. God can talk to our kids just fine. It's okay. That's God's right to talk to our kids. Um, then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. That, words, that Hebrew word is only used a couple times in the Old Testament. Every time it's used, judgment and devastation occur. Okay? You do not want God's, uh, God to make your ears tingle. <laughs> this happens if you're having a conversation with God and your ears tingle. I don't know what to do. I'd say go to a lightning rod and hold on, but you're about to die. It's not going to be good. Okay? In that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. But think about hearing this as a child. He's a child still. And he just got this ridiculously weighty message about the man who has raised him. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. This is probably one of his jobs at the tabernacle. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What's the word that the Lord spoke to you? Do not hide it from me. God do to you so, and more also, if you hide everything, anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And this is the key here, is that always deliver God's message. God's man must always deliver God's message. And I hope you understand that God's man may not like the message. There are things that Gary and Daryl and Brian stand up and preach that they do not enjoy saying. Because sometimes we think, oh, they, they must love that. No, they, they, it's a burden that they carry and they hate it sometimes. But that's what God told them to say. So they've got to say that. Um, so always deliver God's message. And he said, Samuel said, it is the Lord. Let him do what he seems good to him. Which can either be this kind of fatalistic approach to life where, ah, whatever. Or, oh, no, maybe he'll have mercy on me. Not really sure. 
Verse 19, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground, which is an Old Testament way of saying everything he said came true. He's a prophet. He's not a priest. He's a prophet. So in this intermediate period where we're trying to figure out who's really in charge of Israel, God raises up a prophet because that's what God does. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, which is kind of like saying from New York to California, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, a lot of stuff in this text, right? We go from wicked sons to beautiful example of a Christian young man. So what's the point? Well, speaking the truth, uh, like Hannah and Samuel did, is hard. Sometimes you can speak the truth to God in prayer, and that's hard. Uh, God will raise up leaders at the right time. That's what he does. And God deals justly with all men and women. That's... And I'm glad he does that, because I, I got nothing on the whole thing. I don't know how to handle that. Um, so what do I do with that? Well, speak the truth to God in prayer, to men in truth, and to yourself about reality and what God says about your situation. Uh, number two, pray for and encourage godly leaders when God raises them up. I don't know who encouraged Samuel. I really don't. It certainly wasn't uh, Phineas and Hophni. I mean, they, they're doing their own pagan thing. Maybe Eli did, I guess. He got it somehow. And then know that God will always do the right thing because that's what he does. So that's 1 Samuel 1 through 3. Next week is King Saul. So we kind of transition out of this prophet uh, priest era into the kings, into the, the, the monarchy, if you will, of Israel. So let's do our prayer requests at our tables and uh, pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Thanks for coming, guys.